this is the word of God. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I came from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Verse 11. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost, except the son of destruction, that the scripture might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. Verse 20. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. The grass rivers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Let us pray. O Father, would you 
humble us as we come before your word. And Father, would you use these words to encourage us and to exhort us as we seek to live in dependence upon Christ. Help us to see how desperately we need Christ and that we may be comforted because we know that Christ has prayed for us. And so, Father, we come before you and we pray that you will guide us and illumine us so that we may understand your word. We pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as I mentioned, we come now to our final passage in the sermon series on the Upper Room Discourse. Now up to this point, we have seen how Jesus dialogues and talks to his disciples. We can kind of describe them as words of instruction and encouragement for them. Now here we see Jesus shifting into a mode of prayer as he prepares his disciples for the prospect of the cross. Now this prayer is often called the High Priestly Prayer. And it's given this label because of what Jesus is doing for his people here. He's interceding to God and he is praying on our behalf like a priest would intercede for God's people in the Old Testament. And yet we can see that there is something unique and different about Jesus' prayer here. It is a very deeply personal prayer. And often we see Jesus praying in the Gospels, but where in the New Testament do we see intimate words of prayer like the ones we see here in John 17. In this prayer, we get a glimpse into the very heart of our Savior for His Father and for His people as He bids farewell to His disciples. Now, the 16th century reformer, Philip Melanchthon, he once made this comment about this passage. There is no voice which has ever been heard either in heaven or in earth more exalted, more holy, more fruitful, more sublime than the prayer offered by the Son of God himself. The Puritan Anthony Burgess, who was one of the theologians at the Westminster Assembly in the 17th century, thought that this was such a rich and a profound passage that he decided to preach 145 sermons on this one passage alone. And in fact, the sermons of Burgess was just republished very, very recently. Now, one of the expressions that Burgess used is to compare this prayer to a land flowing with milk and honey because it contains such a treasury of consolation for the believer. And Jesus, he didn't just pray this in private, as he so often did, but he prayed this out loud so that his disciples could hear him praying. He prayed before them so that they would receive comfort as they go out into the world. Or perhaps this is our own experience as well, when a fellow brother or sister prays for us, whether solicited or unsolicited. And we often find it comforting to know that we are being prayed for because it tells us that we are being cared for. And here Jesus is revealing his heart to us and he is telling us how much he truly cares for us by praying for us. And my hope is that as we listen to what Jesus is saying here, that we too will be comforted and be encouraged as we go out into the world. So we'll look at this prayer in terms of three elements or three petitions. First, there's the prayer to reveal the glory of Jesus and the Father. Second, there's the prayer for the guarding of Christ's disciples. And third, there's the prayer of a twofold goal for Christ's disciples. There's the goal of unity. 
and the goal of global missions. Now children, if you're following on the worksheet, the, the main points over there are glory, guarding, and goal. Sorry, this is my best attempt at alliterations, but glory, guarding, and goal. So let's look at the first point on glory. Look at verses 1 to 2. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Then look at verse 5. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Jesus is praying to God the Father that he will glorify his Son. Now, once again, Jesus tells us that the hour has come. And as we saw from the first sermon of this series, this language of the hour points to the accomplishment of Christ's work of redemption here on earth. It points to what he will do at the cross, that is, right ahead, and his return to his heavenly glories. Now here we see that Jesus' path to glory was a path that was marked by humiliation and suffering. The path itself was anything but a glorious path. And we see that Jesus Christ, he came into a world that was already rejecting him, and he lived his whole life as the suffering servant of God. He was reviled, and he was scorned by the ones he came to save. And his humiliation extended even to death on the cross. And this is what the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians 2 when he spoke about the lowliness of Jesus on earth. And yet Jesus also glorified God throughout his entire life when he was on earth by being obedient in every single way. In fact, even the death of Jesus on the cross brought glory to God. Now, why is that? It is because we see both the justice and the love of God on display at the cross. We see justice when Jesus took the punishment for our sins at the cross. But at the same time, we see love displayed so that whoever believes in Christ shall have eternal life. And Jesus, as we know, didn't just remain dead in fact, he rose gloriously from the dead. And as verse 2 tells us, he has authority over all flesh as the glorious king. Now in theology, we call this the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. It describes the dynamic of Christ's work from his lowly birth to his resurrection, ascension, and his second coming. And we see something of this dynamic on Palm Sunday, don't we? It is helpful to consider that as we find ourselves a week away from Good Friday and Easter. Jesus entered Jerusalem a week before his resurrection from the dead, and he was greeted by a crowd that saw him as the mighty Davidic king. They expected him to overthrow the oppressive political yoke of their Gentile oppressors. Yet we see something unexpected here. Instead of riding on a horse for his entry like a king would, he came in riding on a donkey. A donkey. And this is in fulfillment of the prophecy in Zechariah 9 verse 9 that points to the entrance of the Messiah, but he will enter as a humble king. He will not conquer with political might, as the people hoped, but he will conquer paradoxically through his humility. 
he will conquer through the foolishness of the cross and his rising from death to life. He helps us to see that to be low is to be high. So the glory that Jesus is speaking of here is intimately connected with his great work of salvation as our Savior. The glorifying of Christ is for the purpose of glorifying God himself. Now this is very different from our ordinary experience, isn't it? When we see someone glorifying himself, we see that this is often done at the expense of God's glory. They will often make narcissistic references to themselves and they care very much about how other people see or think about them. There was a book that was published three years ago called Disrupted Witness by Ellen Noble. Uh, It's a book that I highly recommend and it talks about speaking truth in a secular and distracted age. Now in that book, Noble makes this observation about how our modern secular society has turned away from looking to a transcendent God for identity and purpose. Instead, what we do is that we find meaning through what is often called expressive individualism, which says that we acquire meaning and life purpose through our individual identity. And this identity is expressed through our self-expression. Now, what does that mean? Now, Noble gives this example in his book about defending refugees on social media. We need to defend refugees not only because they need defending, but because we want to be the kind of people who are known for defending refugees. We need to be affirm in what we support because to deny it is to deny my life purpose. And for us, because we are living in an age of distraction, we are constantly moving to the next in thing to put on our social media page. It is this movement from one thing or one trend to another that somehow gives, gives us meaning and purpose so that people can see that, oh, we are supporting issue X, issue Y. Now, ultimately, this movement of going from one trend to another is still about the individual self. And in doing so, we point others to ourselves rather than to God. And perhaps as a believer, this is something that you struggle with in your use of social media. But yet, this is entirely different from what Jesus set out to do from his birth till he went back to the Father. He was resolute about glorifying his heavenly Father in all that he did. And this is what we are called to as those who have been united to Christ. This is what happens when the Spirit renews us and it conforms us to the image of Christ. And in doing so, we become more and more like our Savior. And when we become more like Jesus, our lives will shine forth and we begin to reflect more of Jesus' desire to glorify our Heavenly Father. So this is the first petition, which is Jesus' prayer for himself to be glorified. But Jesus didn't just pray for himself. He also prayed for his disciples and he also prayed for those who believe in him. And this takes us to our second point, which is the petition for God to guard them while they're still in the world. So this is the second point. 
Jesus speaks of how his disciples have been kept from the beginning in verses 6 to 10. These are the very disciples that the Father had given to Jesus before the foundation of the world, and they know Jesus and the Father in the truth. Now, this is not just mere head knowledge, mere cognitive knowledge, but it is an intimate form of knowing. These very disciples have been kept, except for the Son of Destruction, which refers to Judas Iscariot, who was destined to be condemned from the beginning. Jesus is very clear about who he is praying for. He is praying for those who are his. He says this in verse 9, I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. He's not praying for everyone in general, but he is praying for his disciples. In this way, Jesus reminds us that believers do not belong to the world, but we have been called out from it. And we see this further explained in verses 14 to 15, when Jesus says this, I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. And this is very similar to what we saw back in chapter 15, when Jesus warned his disciples about the hatred of the world. Jesus told his disciples that they are not greater than the master, and because he himself was hated, they too will be hated because of who they are united to. Now, what is the nature of this keeping or guarding from the evil one that Jesus is saying here? Is Jesus praying for the physical safety of his disciples? I don't think that's the case. After all, the apostles themselves went through much suffering and persecution for the cause of Christ. And I don't think that this is somehow the evidence that Jesus' prayer failed. And certainly, Jesus does not intend for his disciples to withdraw from the world. And one of the problems with the Pharisees during Jesus' time was their separation from the rest of the society. They formed a religious enclave so that they could escape the so-called contamination of their society. And what this did is that it only brought about a deeper temptation for, for them to see themselves holier than everyone else. It was a very, very great temptation. So it doesn't seem like physical protection is the main idea here. Now, if that's not the case, then what is it? I think what is meant here is that they are kept specifically from the work of the devil that will make them like the world. And this is why Jesus prays what he prays in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Now the term sanctify is not just saying that we need to be holy. And I think sometimes we use that term in a way that is used pejoratively. Rather, I think the main idea is the idea of being set apart. Jesus himself was set apart. And this is what we see in verse 19 when he says that he consecrates himself. And we are set apart from the world because God has called us from the world to be joined to Jesus. And we are to think and live according to the truth of God. And as Christians... We are to be in the world, but we are not to be of the world. And I think this is very important when we think about our identities as Christians. On the one hand, isolation in our own 
little Christian communities seems like a better option for us when we want to remain faithful without being seen as, quote-unquote, weird. I remember back in school when a classmate who knew that I was a Christian, he took away one of my belongings and he mocked at me and he told me to pray to God so that I can get the thing that he stole from me. He was like, ha! You say, you believe in God, right? So pray, pray, pray to God and pray that he would force me to, you know, give this thing back to you. So at that point of time, I was mocked because I was a Christian. And the fact is that this is a very real problem. Now, it doesn't necessarily take the form that I experienced, but it can take a variety of ways regardless of where we are. Now, unfortunately, it's almost impossible to live like a hermit here in Singapore. And I think it wouldn't actually be faithful to what Scripture says because we are told to love our neighbors as ourselves. We are to love our neighbors in godly witness. So I don't think we are just called to isolate ourselves. But on the other hand, we need to admit that the temptation to conform or to assimilate with the world is very great. And probably this is the greater temptation for us. After all, does it, does it not make our lives easier and better if we just kind of like blend in with the world and look like everyone else? But the thing is this, if the church looks like the world in every single way, then what is the point of having the church? What is the point of having the church if we just kind of look the same as everyone else? You will basically say that the church has nothing to offer to the world. You're saying that the church is not going to be the salt of the earth and it's not going to be the light of the world that it was called to be. As such, we need to avoid the extremes of isolation and assimilation in our Christian life. In a way, this is what we are reminded when we gather together every week for our worship services. When God calls us together and to worship together as a church, you know, when we come together and we give praises and we pray and we listen to the word preached, He is reminding us that we are not of the world. We are not just people who work and work and work without resting. On the other hand, when you come to the end of the worship service, when you go out of the church door into the world, we are reminded that we, as Christians, we are still in the world. We continue to work, but we work for God's glory. So both of these realities need to be held on to as we live as God's people. Now, of course, this is going to be very difficult because of our faith in Christ. And we saw this several weeks ago, that this might even entail severe persecution for what we hold on to. And we see this in Acts 14.22, when the Apostle Paul encouraged the disciples in Lystra to persist in the faith and to see that it is through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Suffering is something that we must expect as followers of Christ. And in fact, I will say this, if being a Christian is easy, then how are you going to see 
your desperate need for Christ. How are you going to come to Christ and say, Lord, I need you every hour, every minute, and every second of my life? And yet, there's also the confidence that when we go out, that Christ will keep us close to his heart and he'll keep us faithful in him. He prays that we will be guarded in the world. So this is the second petition, that we be guarded from the world. Finally, we see that Jesus didn't just pray that we'll be kept soundly in the faith, but he also prayed that we will come to achieve certain goals during our time on earth. So this leads us to our final point. Now there is a twofold goal or purpose that Jesus is praying here. The first is the goal of unity. Now look at verses 20 to 23. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me, the glory that you have given me I had given to them, that they may be one, even as we are one, I in them, and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you loved me. Jesus prayed for the unity of his believers. He says this three times in these four verses, which tells us this is something that's very important for Jesus. And you remember back in chapter 15 when we talked about Jesus, when he described himself as the true vine, and as believers, we are the branches. Yes, we are united to the true vine, but it also tells us that there's an organic connection between the branches. And as our relationship with Jesus grows, so does our relationship with fellow believers grow. Now, this is not a bare kind of unity, but it's a unity that is rooted in the truth, and it's rooted in the father-son relationship. Look again at what Jesus prayed in verse 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Our Lord Jesus prayed that his disciples would grow and be made holy as they cling onto the life-giving word that their master has taught them. Our relationship with one another, with one another, has to be grounded in the truth. And not only that, it is also grounded in the unity between the Father and the Son. Look at verse 21 that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I in you, that they also may be in us. Jesus prays that our unity in purpose, love, and actions will reflect the profound unity of the Father and the Son. Now, the fact is this, the relationship between the Father and the Son is completely different from anything that we have here on earth, they know each other perfectly and they love each other perfectly. And yet, when we trust in Jesus, we actually get a small taste of what that unity is like. 
And not only that, Jesus prayed that the disciples would be in us. When Jesus said in us, he's referring to himself and the Father. It further describes and enhances the deep and intimate relationship that we will have with God by virtue of our union with Christ. And this is what unity looks like. Now, our unity is not just strictly restricted to our relationships in the church, but it also extends to other believers in Christ. All of us Christians, we are all part of the body of Christ. Now, perhaps it doesn't feel that way when you look around and you see all of these different churches, different denominations everywhere you go. And these denominations exist because we have different understandings for how we, quote-unquote, do church. But we should not allow these differences to detract us from fellowship with one another if we, believe, if we actually believe in the same gospel. As D.A. Carson puts it, this unity is not achieved by hunting enthusiastically for the lowest common theological denominator, but by common adherence to the apostolic gospel, by love that is joyfully self-sacrificing, by self-conscious dependence on God himself for life and fruitfulness. The things that tie believers together are more significant than the things that divide us. Now, this is not to say that differences don't matter, because it means but rather it means that we recognize the fundamental importance of what actually holds us together as Christians. Now, this is why Orthodox churches everywhere, they're able to confess ancient creeds like the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed because there's this understanding that there are truth, there are core truths of the Christian faith and that we can come together with believers from across the ages to confess the one true and living God. Again, this is not, this is not saying that believers should somehow you know, look identical to one another, you know, whether in terms of personalities or in terms of our interests. Now that, you see there, that is actually not unity. That is uniformity. That's not true unity. Or rather, that's not what true unity necessarily entails. Rather, what it does mean is that our eyes are similarly fixed on Jesus. And because of that, our relationships with one another takes on a whole different character. So this is the first goal, the goal of unity. And the second goal is the goal of missions to the world. We see this in verse 18 when Jesus tells his disciples, as you, or rather he's he speaking to God and he's referring to his disciples, as you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Jesus has commissioned his disciples to go out into the world so that they may bring the good news of the gospel out into the world. They go out as ambassadors of the king. And we see this in verse 2, and we see this in Matthew 28, verse 18, that all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Jesus. This is the ground, and this is the confidence that the disciples had as they went out and they proclaimed the gospel. And we see this in the book of Acts as a whole, when you see the gospel radiating out from Judea to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The early church 
went out in the power of the Spirit and the people, and people were continually added to the church. And, as, and for us, as those people who have believed through the gospel proclaimed, we are, in a sense, extended recipients of what the apostles began to do in the book of Acts. But we are not just recipients. We are also called to proclaim the gospel to the world. Again, verse 20 tells us that Jesus is praying for those who will believe in him through the word. And this word is word that needs to be heard. Paul tells us in Romans 10, 17 that faith comes from hearing and hearing the word of Christ. Now, this is very much in line with our second main point, which is that we are not just isolated from the society, nor are we just assimilating or conforming to the broader culture, but we are called to go out into the world and we are called to bring the gospel out to the nations. Now, I was working on a paper this past week, and the question that, was, that we had to answer was this question. What would make your church more missional? What would make your church more missional? I think that's a very good question. And I think the first step towards answering that question is to actually talk about it. Let's talk about missions as a whole. We have this, and the fact is that we have this in our church's vision, which says that we desire to see people converted. And yet, we are also called to talk about the good news of Christ, not just locally, but globally as well. Now, some of you might know that our church is a global affiliate of this church planting network called Redeemer City to City, uh, which was started by Tim Keller in New York City with a vision towards planting gospel-centered churches in global cities. Now, when Tim Keller was teaching at Westminster Philological Seminary, he was very much influenced by this guy called Harvey Korn, who used to mentor him at the seminary. And Harvey Korn himself, he was an early advocate of doing ministries in urban cities. Now, because of Harvey Korn's influence, this motivated Tim Keller to see the need for gospel-centered ministries in cities with rapid urbanization. Now, eventually, this led him to start City to City, for the training of pastors to plant churches everywhere, and this is a thing that we are a part of. Now, I'm giving that example not to say that all of us need to be like Tim Keller and we should go and start our own church planting networks the way he did, but rather my main point is that we need to imbibe a global perspective on the Christian faith. We need to be reminded that God is not just working in one covenant church, nor is he just working here in Singapore, but he's working throughout the globe and he continues to gather his elect from every nation through his word. Now here in Singapore, we have a very, very unique context. We have people coming here from all over the world and in a sense, we have the world brought to us even if we don't travel out of the country. And what this does is that it presents a wonderful, great opportunity for us to witness and share the gospel with them, with people who are coming from other countries, you know, whether they're here in the short term or whether they're here in the long term, is our opportunity to witness 
to them. Now, this witnessing and proclaiming the gospel, this is not just another item on our so-called to-do list. And I know that our list is actually very long already for most of us. Rather, we need to see that this is our identity and this is our calling that we get from our relationship with Jesus. A legal nunkan, he puts it this way. Jesus was sent to accomplish a mission. He did. We're now sent to declare a message about his accomplishment of a mission. That's what we are. That's what we do. We are called to go out and proclaim the good news. So as we can see from this passage, that Jesus not only prayed for himself, but he also prayed for us. In verse 26, we see Jesus' promise to his church as he concludes his prayer. I made known to them your name, and I'll continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Jesus is promising us that the Father's love towards us will continue to increase as we abide in Christ. And this is all the more remarkable when you realize that he prayed for us during his moment of distress. We have the cross that is just a few hours away from him. But you see, this didn't prevent him for praying, from praying for the ones whom he cared about. And this is the deep, deep love of our Lord Jesus. And it's all the more comforting to know that Jesus prayed for us so that we may be encouraged, especially as we are going through rough times. On the 19th century pastor, Robert Murray McShane, he once said this, If I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million of enemies. Yet the distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. You see, and this is what Jesus did for us. And he continues to do this for us at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 7.25 tells us that Jesus always lives to make intercession for his people. His work as our great high priest didn't just stop when he was raised to the right hand of the Father. Jesus continues to pray for us, and he will continue to do so until the day we see him in all of his glory. And before that happens, we continue to live in this world, even though we are not of this world. We are called to go out in boldness and with confidence to proclaim the gospel of Jesus, knowing that we are kept by him. Now, if you're attending our worship service this morning and you're not a believer in Christ, let me just say how grateful I am that you're here with us this morning. And here we are, you know, one week away from Good Friday, we're one week away from Easter. And this, and Good Friday and Easter points to the two pivotal events of Jesus Christ, which is his death and his resurrection. 
Now, over 2,000 years ago, a week before all of these things happened, this very humble king, he entered the city of Jerusalem a week before his death. And he came to die not for the righteous people, but rather he came to die for sinners. He came to die for people who were seeking their own glory. But Jesus himself, he did something totally different. Jesus came to glorify his Father, and he did this through dying on the cross and conquering death by coming back to life. And those who trust in him will receive eternal life. This is the very humble and loving king who is now calling you to repent and to trust in him. And the question is this, will you hear his call? Let us pray. Father in heaven, we come before you with hearts of gratitude for the salvation they have given to us in Christ. We know that we are undeserving of your grace, but you loved us and you demonstrated the deep love of Christ for us with his death on the cross for our sins. We see that Christ took upon himself what we were supposed to receive and we realize that there is no appropriate response other than to live a life of gratitude. We pray that you would strengthen our unity in Christ through mutual encouragement and through praying for one another in the Spirit. And Father, we also pray that you would embolden us as we proclaim the wonderful message of the Gospel and we pray that you'll use us as you gather your people from every tribe, from every tongue, nation, and people. Father, we continue to pray for the nation of Myanmar as we see the devastation that is continuing with even more lives that are lost. We see the widespread fear and confusion as the unrest persists and escalates there. We see that communications have been cut off from the outside world, and we see the ravages that has only stirred up more chaos. And it reminds us that we live in a fallen world. But as we see this, as we see all of these things unfolding, these are things that really hurts us, and they hurt us so deeply. And so, Father, we pray that we that you would bring comfort and healing to those who are grieving and to those who are hurting. We pray for the restraining of evil and violence along with the protection of those who are vulnerable. And we pray for our brothers and sisters in Christ over there that they will remember that you are still on the throne and that you will never leave nor forsake them. And Father, we also want to pray for missionaries around the world who are ministering in such difficult times. We know that many of them are not just experiencing hardships, but they're suffering actual persecutions from those who hate the gospel. And Father, we pray that you would keep them faithful in you. 
Father, we pray also that you would encourage them, even when it seems like there is little fruit or growth in where they are serving at, because we know that your word will never return empty, but it shall accomplish what you have purposed. And so, Father, would you be with them and be with us as we continue to live in this present evil age. And Father, we know it's, it's so difficult, but we have hope because you are with us. And we look forward to the day when we shall see the full glory of Christ from then to eternity. Thank you, Father. Hear our prayers as we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.